Welcome back to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. For today's episode, we're talking about the video game Assassin's Creed II. Released in 2009 by Ubisoft, this incredibly popular game sold over 9 million copies and helped solidify the Assassin's Creed franchise into the juggernaut of gaming it is today. To give you some idea of how it's remembered, a 2017 article on Polygon.com ranked the 500 greatest video games of all time, and Assassin's Creed II placed 155th, which is the highest placement of any Assassin's Creed game. Obviously, that's just one website's opinion, but it does suggest that the game is held in high regard. Fans of the franchise will know that each game in the series features a historical setting, and for Assassin's Creed II, that setting is Renaissance Italy. For the bulk of the game, the player takes the role of Ezio Auditore da Firenze, a young nobleman who learns that he's descended from an order of assassins. Ezio seeks revenge against the villainous Knights Templar for contriving to have his family executed, and later to prevent them from gaining power by securing Christian relics. The game is famous for trying to make players feel immersed in the setting of Renaissance Italy. It's an open-world game, so players can explore late 15th century cities like Florence and Venice that the developers have attempted to recreate. The game plays upon classic historical tropes of Renaissance Italy, featuring powerful families and cutthroat political rivalries between them. The game also casts real historical figures as characters, from Leonardo da Vinci to Pope Alexander VI. Gamers see history as a big part of the appeal of the Assassin's Creed franchise. To give you some sense, I was watching some clips of the game on YouTube to prepare for the podcast, and one of the top comments on one of the videos I watched uh, said, Let's be honest. This is the part where we get hooked into history. This comment had about 1.7 thousand upvotes. To discuss the game with me, I'm joined by Eric Piccile. Eric is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, whose research focuses on the economic history of Renaissance Italy. Eric also works with digital tools as part of his historical work. Sort of like the game developers, he's worked on creating a 3D recreation of 16th century Florence. We've got a great conversation for you today, so let's get into it. All right, I'm very excited to be joined for today's episode by my colleague at the University of Toronto, Eric Pichile. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hello, Louis. Thank you for having me. Eric, could you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and, and what your research is all about? Myself, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, studying the relationship between private wealth and the development of the welfare state, more, more or less colloquial terms, in Renaissance Italy. In broad strokes, my research interests include the history of wealth inequality, state finance, economics as culture, and the history of capitalism. Outside of that immediate research range, I do a lot of work with digital history, which broadly speaking refers to using technology that isn't just the written word to teach and experience historical content. In my own work, this has included doing digital mapping, network analysis, 3D visualization, and even just sometimes like artistic renderings just to get a better sense of how how historical events happen in a more spatialized way rather than just kind of something you experience on like a, in, in a book. Right. I've worked for a project called the Digitally Encoded Census and Information Mapping Archive, 
which was kind of my gateway into all things digital. And this has naturally brought us to our topic today, the video game Assassin's Creed 2, which is actually featured in my own work as a template of what not to do when doing <laughs> digital mapping work for for the purposes of historical accuracy. Very cool. Yeah, we heard a little bit about that. My, my last guest was uh, Hannah, who, who also works on this project. So she, she gave us like a, a brief introduction to it, but I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it later. So yeah, our, uh, our topic for today, Assassin's Creed II. As you mentioned, another spatial rendering of history. We'll get into exactly what, <laughs> what we think of it, but can you briefly describe the game and maybe summarize, briefly summarize the story of Assassin's Creed 2. Spoilers for anyone who hasn't played this game from 2009. Uh, and if you haven't played the game from 2005, this is not a paid ad, but I do <laughs> recommend an advocate an advocate that you should play it. Assassin's Creed 2, as the title suggests, is the second game of the franchise of that same name. Uh, and it was designed to make best use of the Anvil engine, which was the 3D design engine used to create the first one. The first one felt like a draft in the gaming community and for historians who are interested in like experiencing the historical content, it kind of rang a little flat. So Assassin's Creed 2 was is a, is a story sequel with the intent of being like a final draft of what the first one should have been, if that's a right. If if that's a way to uh, spin it. Uh, the game tells two stories really. The first is that of a character named Desmond. Uh, a man living in the present-day United States who, in the first game, is captured by a company named Abstergo Industries, a modern-day front for the Knights Templar that is looking into tap into his genetic memory to uncover the secrets of the Assassins, a secretive group that opposed the Templar's actions since the Middle Ages. Using a device known as an Animus, Abstergo kind of hooks... De- hooks Desmond up to it uh, in this kind of like altered carbon VR thing. And (laughs) basically he gets to live the events of his ancestors in first person. Mm -hmm. The second game begins with Desmond being rescued by present day assassins who are looking to train him to be a present day assassin using the genetic memory of his ancestor Ezio Auditore da Firenze. And then the second game's primary narrative arc focuses on Desmond going through this genetic memory. The story is pretty the story gets less convoluted at this stage. And it's <laughs> basically about Ezio seeking revenge for his family who were killed by members of a Templar conspiracy. In a, pl- in a broader plan to secure Italy as a base for the Knights Templar. Right. The game's marketing and presentation try to give the impression that it fits into like a strategic stealth game where the player is supposed to overcome challenges through careful planning and guile. But when you actually play it, it's a straight-up swashbuckling adventure with the occasional ma- majestically rendered knife leap off of the building. Right. Yeah. So... You're transported back, essentially, to Renaissance Italy, and the game really heavily promotes 
or or, or it's, it's, it's heavily associated with history as like a sort of key piece of like the both the Assassin Assassin's Creed franchise generally and this game specifically. People think about this as sort of like an experience of history. So so very appropriate for this podcast, I think. You've played the whole game, right? You maybe did you play it when it came out or or more recently or Yes, I played it when it came out and actually in preparation for the podcast, I uh uh over the course of a couple of days I chiseled away at it uh once okay, more, yeah. uh, w- w- once more just to reacquaint myself. Very cool. I d- I've never played this game myself, but I did, you know, watch a little bit of let's plays and stuff before we got started, and I'm pretty sure my brother played this when we were teenagers. I, I think I remember, like, seeing him over his shoulder playing it. So, let's get into the historical themes in the game. It seems to me a big part of the, the plot of this game is these conniving, backstabbing, and, and violent, powerful families of the Italian Renaissance, you know, the, the Borgias, the Medicis, the Pazzis, which are all real families from history, are, are characters in the game. And I think this is kind of a trope of how people think about Renaissance Italy, is, is the politics of the period is defined by this type of relationship between families. What are your thoughts on this? And does it hold up to any kind of historical scrutiny? And, and you know, why do, why do you think this interpretation of the Renaissance is so popular? So I think that like that specific trope, I think goes a little bit beyond just like, like, like a Renaissance Italy funnel. It broadens out actually to, I think how we do a lot of fantasy or even sci-fi and just like speculative settings, generally speaking, mm-hmm. it's a very easy storytelling mechanic as, as consumers of historical media, with respect to the specific game, we we've come to expect this grand drama kind of story, right? Which is familiar from not just this game, but like other historical kind, uh, other historical media as well. And it's 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 an overused trope, without a doubt. And if we really want to push the critical buttons and like f- for Assassin's Creed Two, you could say it's like a caricature esque portrayal of what was assumed to be Italian vendetta culture. Hmm. However, however, where the tropiness does kind of become not a trope is that it holds up insofar as the factions depicted in the game were in fact engaged in conspiracies and backstabbing. (laughs) Right. Okay. And like very clear cut early modern factionalism that was very typical across Italy and Europe broadly speaking, during the early modern period as states were looking to consolidate themselves and, you know, that whole, like, the whole becoming king or, like, becoming the the head of state, think Game of Thrones, started to become a very, very coveted position. So naturally you get these factions emerging that are all trying to get to the top and that's going to result in bad human behavior. Hmm. Where... The game is accurate in the sense that it shows the family being the like the core unit involved in this kind of feuding. Right. And that's because family kinship was the primary social, socio-political safety net for many. And 
even being considered the friend of a like well-regarded family was often adequate protection against political or social opponents and even just like rudeness in daily life. If you were a member, if you were affiliated with a well-known family, people would treat you better because like, oh, you're, you're part of, you're part of this network of powerful people. We don't want to mess with you. Hmm. Where the game falls apart, where the game falls apart in terms of honoring the authenticity of it all, not that we should expect it to remain authentic, is it ignores the politics behind a lot of the factionalism it portrays beyond having it being this like Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet, like they're different blood, like these are just different clans and they fight because they're different clans. Right. For one, for the main to and fro in the game, the Pazzi and the Medici are presented as antagonists based on blood and blood alone, whereas the historical reality was a lot more complex. The Pazzi and Medici were Florentine family families with very different political visions for the future of Florence, with the former particularly interested in a Florence with closer ties to the papacy, and with the city kind of being like a vanguard state for a larger papal principality. Whereas the Medici were more interested in expanding Florence's independence within Tuscany, with them at the head of a pseudo-republic slash oligarchy. At the time of this game, at the time that the game story happens, the Medici actually aren't decided if they want to be oligarchs or kind of like a very dominant Republican faction or not. <laughs> and beyond these separate long-term political visions, these families were also business competitors. Pazzi and Medici banks were some of the biggest in Florence, and while it would be difficult to firmly prove that their common business practice was a cause of friction, during the 1470s where the game takes place, competition in Florence's banking sector was uh, the highest it would ever be. Hmm. So it's not unreasonable to assume that there was an economic as well as political rivalry between the two families historically. And this contrasts to the game, which just goes like, these people are from different families, and these families have beef and they go at it <laughs> right and i think the trope is popular because it makes really nice clear-cut villains like from television series like rome game of thrones the sopranos insert another hbo title here medici masters florence the borgias the tudors arthur merlin or any other media marketed as a narrative epic you're going to find that part of that narrative epic branding is having the these kind of grand complex conspirational conflicts where you know the hero is the person who didn't get backstabbed first fundamentally right <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone else is horrible because they backstabbed this person and he's going to go backstab them and uh like just cause for vengeance right and it, it's it's very easy to create a clear-cut hero clear-cut villain and I think the trope is just a really comfortable way to power the conflict train along the narrative track. And yeah, it does have a historical basis, but it's a lot more, it's way more complex than what is present than what is presented. And I think that at least in the Anglophone canon, given like Shakespearean storytelling has had such an influence, I think it makes sense that we are that, that we replicate it later on. Mm -hmm. I think that all makes sense to me. I was thinking, you know, I, I'm not an expert in Renaissance Italy, obviously, but I was thinking about this, and it does feel like a, a mechanic to avoid talking about any particular political issues. And it's it's much easier to just be like, oh, this, this, this family's filled with jerks, right? And, uh, 
you know, I think even the, the opening scene, once you, you, the first scene as Ezio, I guess it's not the first scene of the game, but the first scene as, as Ezio, the character in the 1470s, is a scene where one of the Patsies shows up and is just really rude. He tries to, like, beat you up, essentially. And it's not really, like, any sort of um, bigger picture thing than, like, these guys are jerks and they don't, they don't get along. So that all made sense to me. Speaking of villains in the game, the Knights Templar are also, obviously, villains in both the present day and in the, the 15th century. The game is partly a, a, a fight between these families, but partly also a fight between the Knights Templar and the Assassin's Brotherhood, which... You know, the Knights Templar is based on a real organization in history. The Assassin's Brotherhood, as far as I know, is not, but maybe they're out there. <laughs> it actually is. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, however, their the relationship to the Knights Templar is, like, ridiculously overplayed. <laughs> okay, right. And anyway, these, these conflicts overlap, in that, like, the family conflicts are also conflicts between the, the Templar and the Assassins. There's a lot of media where... The Knights Templar are sort of this conspiracy, often an evil conspiracy. Sometimes they're not so evil, but like still very secretive and seem like they're sort of up to something. I'm thinking of like National Treasure, Indiana Jones, The Da Vinci Code. Can you tell us a little bit about the the historical Knights Templar and also why this representation of them as this sort of sometimes underhanded conspiracy became so popular. So that is all actually very linked together because the reason, the the reason for the like conspiracy theories is rooted in the historical, like the own historical story of the Knights Templar. So like if we really rewind away from the Assassin's Creed two period and get right into the historical chronology, the Knights Templar was founded as the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon in uh, 1119 current era to protect pilgrims writ large across the Holy Land from marauding and banditry. And this was after the Christians uh, captured Jerusalem from the previous Muslim conquerors. Templars took a monastic vow dedicating themselves entirely to the institution and its principles before becoming formally knighted. Knighthood meant fighting on horseback, as was typical of the designation of medieval Europe. Non-combatant members of the Templar existed as well, and actually formed the bulk of the organization. Only about 10 to 20% of the Knights Templar was actually, like, Knights Templar proper. Hmm. The rest was support staff to keep these men equipped, horsed, fed, and financed. It was nominally an international organization permitting the entry of any Christian or Christian convert. However, the very disproportionately high Frankish presence in Jerusalem after its capture gave the organization particular appeal in the Kingdom of France. So we, there is a lot of uh, Frankish like cultural dominance in the institution. Mm-hmm. The organization was based out of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was repurposed as the Templars' headquarters. It was believed that this mosque was built upon the ruins of the Temple of Solomon itself. The mystique surrounding the location of their headquarters in a renowned biblical temple led to the development of the short-form Templars in their own time, as 
a way of not having to say the poor fellow soldiers of Christ in the Temple of Solomon whenever you're referring to right. <laughs> the institution. And the Templars, in a way, are not necessarily that unique. They're part of this broader move- movement across Christendom where monastic orders were going beyond just preaching and scholarship and becoming more actively involved in the world beyond the cloister uh, or the monastery and taking a taking on the responsibility of actually defending the Christian world as it started to extend itself across Europe during the uh, uh, 12th century. Through the lobbying of Bernard of Clairvaux, a famous Burgundian monk, church and popular support for the institution skyrocketed. The organization's original design was not too dissimilar from other monastic institutions where a certain degree of humility and poverty, typical, very typical uh, early Christian virtues, and funds were to be received via charity exclusively. Clairvaux's preaching undid a lot of this design with large sums of money coming to the order from donors across Europe and them even being on the books of the papacy itself. Such large sums required the development of complex financial management system, which is where a lot of the mystery surrounding the Templars actually comes into play. They were enormously wealthy in an atypical way to any other monastic order. Interesting. And the financial apparatus they developed to manage their funds set the precedence for the banking sector as we know it today. Hmm. Templar assets existed in almost every major medieval European state making the order something like the first multinational corporation in a way. Wow, that's really interesting. Naturally, the Templars guarded these financial secrets very closely, so that generates a lot of mystique. However, it makes sense that they had so many resources at at their disposal because the operating costs to run a military organization with with knights as the primary troop was ridiculously expensive Hmm. between mounts armor weapons training facilities upkeep fortifications the light like just daily essentials and the daily essentials of all the support staff templar financial needs were actually largely justified and they made sure they spent as much as they could on infrastructure to defend christianity in the holy land as their financial power expanded and along with the military apparatus that that money was spent on Templars became a staple in the armies of Christian states throughout the Holy land, Holy land going beyond their role as simple defenders of pilgrims and functionally becoming fully integrated into the crusading effort. Naturally, this further motivated the close management of finances and the gatekeeping and even more increase, even even greater increase in their assets. Hmm. And their financial success is ultimately what brought them down. 14th century crusading efforts in the Holy Land were becoming costly and largely unsuccessful. Discussions between heads of the crusading organizations with the Avignon Pope Clement V about merging the Templars with other crusading orders were utilized by French King Philip IV to apply political pressure on the papacy to abolish the Templars altogether. Hmm. Philip wanted some significant debts he had taken on to finance inconclusive conflicts with England annulled, and those debts were owed to the wealthiest lender in France, the Templars. Hmm. Philip escalated political pressure to a laundry list of criminal accusations against the order uh, with which the papacy could not afford to be seen as complacent. Torture, mock trials, confessions made, confessions recanted, Hmm. 
basically ends up with all the main leaders of the Templars being executed. Wow. And that was more or less the end of the organization. Their undoing under false charges and the revelation of the extent of their wealth wealth in the aftermath of that shrouded them in mystery almost from the outset. Like the, the legend was born after the fall. It was surprising to many just how wealthy this organization was. And given the charges that we levied against them, many speculations uh, about what went on behind closed doors began to circulate in a way that most monastic institutions would never be scrutinized. Interesting. So, like, as a monastic order, they are secret. Like, they have their they have their codes, they have their secrets behind closed doors. But a lot of scrutiny started to be levied against the Templars because of how much money they had, and because of the whole drama that played out when they were undone. And it what it's really it was really astounding that what was supposed to be an order of humble yet somehow knightly monks could come to command such wealth. Right. The uh, criminal charges that brought the order down added to the mystique. What were they really up to? Were they practicing magic? Were they engaged in blasphemy? Were they actually like heretic? Like, was this actually just like a refuge for former heretics trying to escape the law? There, there are even theories that have suggested that the Templars actually possessed magic, uh, mystical powers. Wow. Uh, Jacques de Molay, the head of the Templars prosecuted by Philip IV, said that Clement the Fifth and the French king would meet him in front of God before the year ended while he was burning at the stake. And by the end of that year, Clement V died of natural causes, and Philip would be mortally wounded in a hunting accident by the end of the year. <laughs> and people think, like, did Molay cast a curse? And because the I don't I don't recall if it's exactly the initial day of arrest or the day of the trials, but there's a myth that has endured in popular culture that like the the, the cursedness of Friday the Thirteenth is because Friday the Thirteenth was when the Templars were brought down or like part of that process started. Oh wow! And like all in all, like this is just like a supremely juicy drama. Mm-hmm. Right, like, like yeah. this story is so spicy, and we live in the post-Christian Western world where the subject matter is interesting as a result, and it's far away from us with a less than abundant evidentiary record, and you know we like our certainty perhaps a little too much sometimes, and because of all the holes in our knowledge, the mystique kind of grows, um, and unfortunately because we'll never know anything with any degree of precision speculating is fun and talking about this organization as like actually these villains as opposed to the knights in shining armor it's as old as the it's as old as the downfall of the institution itself and it like we we can keep doing it and there's never anything that's going to bubble to the surface to uh cut that down with respect to how the mystique compares to reality i personally argue that any charges of secret villainy are large especially the kind that's portrayed in the game, is very much overblown. Yeah. In a kind of unremarkable way, the evidence shows that the Templars kind of just did their job. They protected Christian pilgrims in the Holy Land, along with joining crusading efforts. Their financial activities, while remarkable in scope, were also very typical of an organization of that kind. They Mm -hmm. bought the things they needed, while also leveraging loans to maintain their books. Like, but they, they, they behaved as we expect financial institutions to behave. Hmm. And 
they really just did what they did. But because this, again, like I said, because the story is so spicy, it's right. <laughs> really, really fun to like yeah. think like, what if they had magic swords? What if they had the Holy Grail? <laughs> what if they had the Ark of the Covenant? What if the Ark of the Covenant was the only thing allowing this very small combat unit to like be so successful? <laughs> right? Like it, we, we, we can bounce ideas back and forth, and it's it's fun and engaging to do it, which is I think why. They appear as they do, and they make such fun villains in the game. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, so you mentioned like something that I wanted to follow up with you on, which is especially in a lot of these representations of the, the Knights Templar, they're somehow like either keepers of or or questing after like really powerful lost Christian relics, whether that be the Holy Grail or in this game, it's something called apples. Yeah, the, the apple of Eden. Yeah. The, the, is that where does that come from? Do do we know anything about that, or is that just part of like the whole like? Surely they didn't go away. Surely they've just hidden themselves away into this this quest. Or yeah, where does that come from? Part of that comes from like just the inherent fetishization we have with like the artifact and like the big treasure being mm-hmm. this wonderful, fantastical idea that we just love to think about. Right. Like we love to think that there's that, that civilizations had. In, in, incredible artifacts and technology that might even have been cures for our own ales today, and it's lost because because history and mm-hmm. ancient aliens is also a thing, right? Right, like the, like the, the speculative historical exercise is just fun. So like chasing the mystery is always great. With respect to the Templars specifically, they were known, and this was common of all all crusading orders. They were they were known to be the bodyguards of relics. And also generally responsible for their shipping and handling. So, like a new relic came to town, there was generally if there was generally like a Templar or a, some other monastic armed monastic order responsible for being its bodyguard mm-hmm. to make sure no one stole it or and to like prove its authenticity. And in the case of the Crusades, Templars were sometimes responsible for recovering them okay. uh, if they were at a holy site that was deemed inappropriate. And this didn't necessarily always mean like uh, an Indiana Jones style conflict uh, with booby traps to uh, re- reclaim reclaim the lo- the great lost Christian artifact, but like it it was part of their duty to manage the treasures of Christianity. Right. Okay, that makes sense. When you were saying that, I was imagining you said they were responsible for the shipping and handling, and I was imagining like if you order enough relics, the shipping and handling is free. <laughs> It's just a just a joke. Europe was relic crazy. Right. It became a matter of prestige between churches to who had more relics. Right. Right down to if you read accounts of some bishops in the Middle Ages, they would visit another. They would visit a reliquary site, and if it had like the body of somebody, I've I've personally read accounts where bishops have been reported to try to bite body parts of the skeleton off. Wow. So that they could wow. sneak them out. I'm no medievalist, but I'm pretty sure I've read an account of rival towns with relics, like, stealing the relic back and forth between their churches. Which, you know, feels kind of, like, not in the spirit of the instructions in the Bible, but but there you have it. Interesting. Okay, so, shifting gears a little bit from the villains of the game to some of the, the heroes of the game. 
The game features a variety of actual historical figures as characters, right? So, so Ezio befriends Leonardo da Vinci, Niccolo Machiavelli, for example, but not just as heroes. Um, one of the main villains of the game is Rodrigo Borgia, who in the late 15th century became Pope, Pope Alexander VI. Can you talk a little bit about the depiction of these individuals? I mean, obviously, there's some liberties in the game. You know, in the game, both Da Vinci and Machiavelli are members of the Assassin's Brotherhood, which I guess we don't know for sure, but seems uh, seems like a stretch. But beyond the sort of, like, obviously ridiculous stuff, what do we make of their depiction in the game? So I find that, I find generally that their depictions in the game are kept com- are within the realm of comfortably accurate mm-hmm. insofar as these are people we know to have done certain things so we're going to give them personalities of the tw- like the per- personalities of 20th century people that we can relate to to make them feel like relatable and i mean right. leonardo was a polymath so they present him as like the quirky kind of out there nerd. Right. Uh, Machiavelli makes a very brief appearance before jumping off of a tower into a bale of hay. Um, <laughs> and he's very well-spoken, well, uh, re- dressed in the uniform that is, he's commonly portrayed in, in the famous Santi di Tito portrait and is actually rendered based very closely based on that portrait. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed that when I was doing the research, that the, the character looks like the famous painting. Yeah, yeah and he, and you know, being the being the like po- political man that he was, he speaks and acts like a political man. Obviously, dressed up in twenty first century trappings. Mm-hmm. And Rodrigo Borgia, I mean, he he was in fact dead set on like grabbing the levers of power uh, and advancing the cause of his family. So what you see is you know your typical power hungry villain. You know, perhaps the villainy is overplayed to, you know, make you empathize with Ezio's uh, hunt, cause of hunting him down. Mm-hmm. But he, despite the incongruencies and the incongruencies based on the fact that, like, we can't, you, you, you know, we, we can't, you know, bring them back to life and, and, like, have a conversation and then paste that into a game, the boot generally fits. And it fits in a way that I don't think is particularly problematic because it... It, it works to drive the plot the, the plot train along. Right. That makes <laughs> sense. So, why do you think Ubisoft, the developer of the game, wanted to have these sort of real historical people in the game? You know, Da Vinci, Machiavelli, Rodrigo Borgia, Lorenzo de' Medici. Why not sort of invent characters that are kind of like them, but not actually them? And in particular, one thing I was thinking about was it stands out to me that, like, okay, you, you know, you give your game about Renaissance Italy, like, I can kind of, I'm not surprised that you put Leonardo da Vinci in the game. He's an iconic figure from that period. But some of these characters are not people that, you know, your average teen playing the game will have heard of or know anything about, really. Maybe they've heard of Machiavelli, but, like, I think a lot of people don't know anything about Rodrigo Borgia, Lorenzo de' Medici. So... What is, what work is it doing from the game's perspective to include real historical people as characters? So to invent a word, 
I think that the benefit of having these historical figures there is that it makes this game set in a real place at a real time mm-hmm. with real historical elements named. Right. It just makes it more renaissance mm-hmm. Like It adds to the immersion that you're this person walking around in the renaissance and it makes it, it it make it's kind of like a teaching tool that uses familiarity hmm. to get you to like learn about a thing. So like you're walking around like, oh, there's this Da Vinci guy, and he's providing with me with my ga- gadgets, kind of like Q and James Bond. Mm-hmm. But like, oh yeah, like that's that's Leonardo da Vinci. And then there's like this, oh, there's just like Rodrigo Borgia guy, and there's just like family feuding going on, and they, they have like real names and like wait a minute there's like art about them that's real and like it, it's kind of like this it's this it serves to like softly comfort the player and like mm-hmm. teach in like a very subliminal way about the, the time and the place and also peak interest right and one could I also hypothesize that just from a design standpoint this is character development and your dramatis personae prepackaged for you Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. you you don't have to develop a villain from scratch. I can just go like, all right. So who were people who didn't get along in the right. time and place that I'm uh, that I'm trying to recreate in my media form, my movie, my show, my game? Let's just dr- let's just draw a bunch of people that were already there and go done. We we have our conflict. We have our characters. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. You mentioned. The game as a teaching experience. Do you have any? Obviously, that's a big picture question. It's hard, you know, we don't have time to like talk about all its sort of merits and, and drawbacks as a teaching tool. But but what are your thoughts on the game? Thinking about teaching history, I was, as I mentioned earlier, watching some YouTube videos, like let's play of the game before we recorded the podcast, so that I knew something of like the plot and like what the game is like and that sort of thing. And one of the top comments, this had like, and I mentioned this in the introduction for our episode here, but it had like 1,700 upvotes. And it had it said something like, this is where we learned to love history. And I think that's how a lot of people think about the Assassin's Creed franchise is, you know, if there's someone who's ex- interested in history, it's, it's they love it. There a lot of, there's a lot of people who, they love Assassin's Creed because of the sort of history of it. So, so... What do you think are some of the the benefits and drawbacks of this game for teaching history? So the benefits are that if you're unfamiliar with the Renaissance, you know nothing. And all of a sudden you boot this game up Mm -hmm. because of that, like gentle, that gentle teaching immersion with like having like a place like, Oh, Florence, Italy is a real place. Mm -hmm. There's big historical buildings that are renditions of real ones. Uh, there's all these historical characters. It it, it kind of lets you wade comfortably in the in the historical moment in this way with like 21st century camp and a comfort that it, it just feels nice in in a very kind of like software and like the, the game is fun. Like you're you're running around buildings of a city like, oh, I can explore this historical place. And right. it's just so pleasantly gent- gentle. Hmm. And because you're immersed in a narrative, it hooks you in. 
and you're interested in pursuing this narrative that'll take you to other places and let you comfortably be in this place because it in a good way because the game is so superficial it lets you ignore a lot of the complexity and the ugly and in just kind of enjoy the ambiance of a historical place yeah i think one of the benefits i see is is actually like games in terms of getting people excited about history is like you sort of <laughs> sort of take advantage of people's interest in lore right where um people play the game and they're like oh i want to learn everything i can about all the characters let's go read about rodrigo borgia and uh, dig into his like biography or something or like i want to know everything there is to know about the medici bank so i think that can be a, a benefit one drawback that occurs to me is this frustrated me when i was a teenager i read this will circle back but i read abraham lincoln vampire hunter uh <laughs> And, you know, it's like a fun book when I was like 16 or 17 or whatever. But I also, and I don't think I quite realized this fully at the time, but thinking back on it, I think I was a little bit frustrated by the book because it's hard to know where the like history ends and the sort of like concocted plot begins. And, you know, with something like, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, it's it's obvious that Lincoln was not a vampire hunter. Just like in this game, it's obvious that like Da Vinci was not uh, in the Assassin's Brotherhood. But there are details that seem like they could be accurate, and you don't really know, or like, you don't really... It's hard to, I guess, you know, and you can say this about a lot of historical fiction, but it's hard to know like what they've taken a lot of liberties with and what is like pretty close to the truth sometimes. No, for sure. I mean... I think that's always going to be the problem with comfortable immersion. Yeah. Because you're using the setting as the, you're using the setting uh, and the story as the hook to get the audience engaged. And the audience is going to engage. If you're successful in hooking the audience in, they're, they're going to have to confront the history and the fantasy of whatever you've done. And for Assassin's Creed 2, you know, the, um, uh, if you take the entire, if you take the game as the, se the second installment in a grand series, there was, there is no ongoing battle between the historical assassins and the Knights Templar. Uh, no, that th there isn't a, th there isn't this Christian super technology from it that has been perfected since antiquity hiding behind in, in, in buildings and places. And I think that's where like, it's obvious that it's a fiction. Yeah. But I think that for the most part, it's not so much with, with Assassin's Creed 2. It's not that it overly fabricates. It's that it just get it, that it's designed to be superficial in a lot of ways. Right. So it's not that it's giving you any falsehoods. It's just not peeling the onion anymore. And it has a very firm content stop, which is why I, which is what I think one of the big merits of the game is. It is so good at being like cool, familiar, historical, and comforting all in this like nice, this nice, beautifully rendered package that just allows you to, again, do parkour. <laughs> um, uh, Renaissance Italy and see families go at each other. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Speaking of parkour, that gets into my next question, 
The game is famous for attempting to meticulously recreate the look of Renaissance Italy. It's an open world game, so you can explore quite a bit. You know, it's you're not just like following one one path, and you explore a few different places: Florence, Venice. There's others, but you know, it's a couple of examples. What are your thoughts on this depiction of the physical environment? I'm so happy you asked this question because my own digital historical work has touched upon this. Part of my role in Decima was attempting to design a historical 3D Florence based on a combination of contemporary map data mm -hmm. and an artistic representation of the 16th century city by uh, Stefano Bonsignori, who mapped the city from one of the mountains in the 16th century uh, using like standard cart uh, cartography techniques. Even working with firm historical data and having like really good technology to, at my disposal, this was ridiculously daunting. In the end, the only accuracy or, or neat alignment that came out of over a thousand hours of work was the streets. My streets were spot on, not even in dimension, but they were in the correct location. They had the correct terrain elevation. They were in the right spot. Right. And it was very much just an artistic depiction. Or sorry, my reimagining of an artistic depiction with my own accuracy issues. Mm -hmm. In addition to the accuracy issues that are already present in the historical documentation. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to do historical space accurately. And as for the game, it does an excellent job capturing major landmarks such as Florence's Duomo or Piazza San Marco in Venice in like a rough approximation of the state they were in during the Renaissance. But the rest of the game landscape is very much optimized for the game's features or to keep the game gamified. Mm -hmm. Navigating the game requires that Ezio like run up buildings and leap from roof to roof. And the game world sacrifices a lot of historical precision to make that as engaging and as fun for the player as possible. Right. So houses are as opposed to being the typical clustered villa blocks that would have been typical of a lot of these cities. Instead, it's kind of like separate, almost like townhomes. Right. And that's purely so that you can like beeline it across roofs in a straight line. <laughs> and, and like right down to the fact that there's like ruined walls and scaffolds that are like blatantly placed there. Yeah. For the purpose of like, letting you have fun along with the fact that, you know, underneath every tower, there is a very conveniently placed bale of hay for you to jump <laughs> off into from that tower. So like the, but by all accounts, the decor of the game is most certainly Renaissance in feel. And it definitely with regards to its historical structures, obviously within the limitations of what is known and what has yet to be discovered. But it's important to very to recognize that it is very much optimized for the gameplay experience Assassin's Creed looks to provide. Yeah, that makes sense to me. They've sort of uh, amended the landscape a little bit to make the gameplay flow, which is, you know, I think pretty common across games. It's kind of what you would expect. And to be perfectly honest, if you did try to make like a historically accurate city and try to d use those play mechanics in them, it wouldn't work out. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> One thing I was I was thinking about in this regard is sometimes people conflate like the look of historical accuracy to like 
being historically accurate. And, you know, I'm, other examples, like, people watch, like, a, I don't know, a war movie, and they'll be like, oh, the uniforms didn't really look like that. They looked more like they were a, a darker shade of green, or whatever it is. I feel like th this game gets a lot of credit from fans for, like, feeling like it has, like, the look of history, right? But I think, you know, historians would emphasize that, you know, history is, historical accuracy is more than just the, the physical appearance of history, but it's understanding uh, sort of social mores, culture, political dynamics, etc. of the time. All that, all that sort of, like, stuff that is a little harder to just, like, see, but, like, more about how people interact with each other. So I wanted to ask you particularly, like, what are your thoughts about how the game depicts social and cultural life? So uh, kind of rolling back to your first question, the social and cultural life very much relies on, like, tropes you're familiar with to drive that plot train. Yeah. And the game only really engages in a depiction of life as perceived by an elite member of the Renaissance world. So the reason we are so fascinated with the Renaissance elite world is because it is so oddly relatable to our own world today, and it captures a unique historical moment where the, they, they, they finally were able to cold start the motor of European uh, economic ascendancy. So in the... European and white North American canon, the Renaissance is particularly flashy for this kind of uh, historical narrative and cultural sense. Mm -hmm. The Renaissance elites are functionally like a, are very much a consumer society, kind of like we are today. Like we like to buy nice things, we like to the we like to we like to show off ourselves and have a very particular sense of self and worldly beautification that is very much familiar to Renaissance elite culture, where uh, instead of just beautifying, you know, you know, some parts of the world, like the church, we're going to beautify the entire city and people are going to have the chance to consume fine things. And like, this is the dawn of the consumer culture moment. So Renaissance elites were very much the drivers of consumption and like the consumer culture of the period. So for us, a Renaissance elite very much feels like very much feels like one of us in a lot of ways, like this person who wants to like enjoy nice things, enjoy beauty, be very intellectual, but, uh, and have all these other leisurely pursuits like the Renaissance elite person, this humanist in big air quote subject is someone who very much seeks to find their place in the world and leave a legacy, which for us as consumer, as, cons as people in a consumer society that is also very, you know, humanistic and individualistic, it feels very, very relatable. And as such, the narratives of, you know, the lower ec economic groups don't really feel, don't, don't really feel as close and proximate at all times. Like the, our, aspira our, our aspirational human subject in a lot of ways is, you know, optimizing our ability to, you know, consume equitably um, and express ourselves individually uh, in an equitable way. And a lot of ways, the Renaissance elite person is that. Right. I do think that there's kind of an interesting thing. I think a lot of people, when they think about history, they're like, 
you know, if you're thinking about Renaissance Italy, for example, just as like a, a person thinking about it, I think a lot of people are like, surely I wouldn't be a peasant. Surely I would have been something fancy or like, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that the people that are relatable, maybe more relatable for them, are not the elites of society. That, no, that's right on. And, and I mean, in a lot of ways, like we get to go to stores and have access to all these products and we get to pick which one we want to buy and have people who work in a service sector whose whole job is to make us feel welcome. So mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, we've given ourselves a titrated Renaissance elite experience in our own da- like daily mundane lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're right even to the fact that we can order food delivered by a 21st century chariot to our door. <laughs> right. Right. Like in, in a lot of ways, we've re- we've we're, we're LARPing the elite life. <laughs> <laughs> that today that 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 today we would feel like oh no i'm not i i'm i'm definitely not part of an elite but my be, but my our behaviors and our um, medic interactions are heavily informed by elite behaviors of the past and in the uh western world very much the renaissance elite right as kind of like the archetype yeah i also think we did an episode of this podcast with graham sutherland couple of episodes ago and we talked about tourism focused on the renaissance in florence and we talked a bit about this idea of like western heritage and how a lot of interest in the renaissance in florence is focused on elite culture and i think and i think you sort of touched on this but there's this question that a lot of people for a long time have asked in history that is, it is a, is a problematic question, to be clear, but a lot of people have been, a lot of historians have been like, well, why is Europe so great? Or like, how did it become, you know, so awesome, essentially? And, and you know, this, this has a lot of racist connotations in the question itself. But I think that looking at the Renaissance, as you mentioned, is sort of key as this instance in which European global power grew. But I think Focusing on elites makes that easier because it's hard to tell this story of greatness when you're focusing on like poor people who are struggling to get by. Uh, precisely. And I mean, that's kind of why my own personal change of the game would be to capture the countryside a bit more because you're going to see poverty, but you're going to see that poverty in this weird moment where it's actually becoming less poor and less destitute like the surely i won't be a peasant statement actually doesn't that doesn't feel quite as bad if you're doing it in renaissance if you're asking that question or inserting yourself into renaissance italy because there is this uptick in quality of life and when i say renaissance here i'm saying italy specifically because of the way that the countryside was mobilized to support the metropole and in other places in europe and this is something that I do appreciate about the game is that it very much shows how uniquely Italian the Renaissance is. And yes, you can talk about like a German Renaissance, a Dutch Renaissance, a French Renaissance, a Spanish Renaissance, but I think there is a, there's a tendency to do a lot of selective Italian erasure when it comes to the Renaissance where, because we live in the, protestant world hmm. the catholicness and the latinness of 
the Italian Renaissance, you'll say, oh, this is great. And it's great how it led us to get our cool thing in our area <laughs> is a, a lot of the times what you what you get with some Renaissance narratives where like the, the, the Italian origin is heavily downplayed to prop up the originality and awesomeness of fundamentally copycat movements in the sense that a lot of the other renaissances happen because artists, painters, and scholars go to Italy to learn things <laughs> and they bring them back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Interesting. So thinking about the game overall, what is your favorite thing about the game as a historian? And also, if you were the creative, if you were made the creative director of the game and you didn't, maybe you didn't have to worry about like how the game's going to sell or something like that. You just made, were making the game you wanted to make as a historian. What, what would you most want to change about it? So my favorite thing about the game is its openness and ample playability. It is very easy to play in the sense that like, there's not this like huge difficulty curve of like button hitting skills and quick reflex moves that you have to learn. And as I've mentioned before, it's in a very comfortable setting. Like, there's all the tr th th there's all these familiar tropes that make the story feel very relatable in 21st century. I've got my clear-cut villains, I've got my clear-cut hero, and it's all kind of dressed in this Renaissance elite richness that you just, like, you want to be there. Hmm. And it, it just does its job as an immersive, historically set game very, very well. And that's what I like the most about it. And like that ease of access, I think, is the virtue of the game. Where like I, you could get so many kids, so many kids interested in Renaissance history through a, a game like this one. Right. And if I was creative director, I might be inclined to change the layout of the game world a little bit to kind of even out the perspectives. Try to get a bit more of that non-elite represented in the game. So much of Renaissance history focuses on the city as the kind of like ultimate social space when then there's this, when there actually was this dynamic rural world that was heavily mobilized economically and socially to support it and ultimately to the rural world's benefit. Hmm. And I think capturing the rural world would have helped even out the elite focus of the game without feeling too contrived. And served as a useful educational tool for the player because functionally the rural world is a place that you have to like meander through once to get to every place and then you can just fast travel your way through it and skip it. Whereas if you had actually captured like the the marshlands around Florence, the hills, or even like the uh, Venetian like the Terraferma or landbound empire, you'd get a bit more of a complete perspective and see and really see how. Yes, the Renaissance is this period where things are taking off in this part, in Italy because everyone is now working to like build this great civilization project that no one really knows what it's going to be and it's actually pr proving to be like economically beneficial and socially beneficial to so many. Hmm. Well, also worth keeping in mind I'm I'm pretty sure this is true of Renaissance Italy, that the vast majority of the population don't live in cities, right? This is true. This is true. Although Italy is the most urban dense and this has the greatest urban density in Europe. But that's also, again, because of that old Roman heritage, that old Roman heritage. They have all these wonderful streets 
like pre-built for them. They don't have to right. build a city from the ground up, uh, like the most of the the most of uh, Europe north of the Alps has to do. Hmm. R- Rome provides this awesome foundation to do to do a lot with. Interesting. Beyond that, I think despite its obvious limitations as a, as a historical recreation, Assassin's Creed II is a wonderful piece of historical fiction. Through again, through reliance on familiar tropes, a very playable rendering of historical space, it feels like it. It feels like you're dipping your toes in the Renaissance hot tub, and it's glamorous, it's flashy, and even though it's blatantly artificial, it does feel vibrant and it does suck you in. Yeah, I mean this, the series, this game in particular, are popular for a reason. Eric, this has been really fun. I've been. Glad to have you on the podcast. Is there anything you'd like to tell the listeners about that you, you know, if they could follow you on lip, on Twitter or, or anything like that? Thanks for asking, Lewis, and thank you for hosting me. Uh, this has been a blast talking about my favorite historical period and, you know, all things about it. You know, it, 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 it it's the profession and the bailiwick, so to speak. I can be followed on Twitter at Eric Pencil, where I circulate my digital historical work, promote my publications. And drop fun facts about the economic and material life of the Renaissance, which is like my real passion. And that's all. Thank you so much, Lewis. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This has been great. That's our interview today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric for joining me on the podcast. For those who'd like to learn a little bit more about Renaissance Florence, check out John M. Najemi's book, A History of Florence, 1200 to 1575. And for those interested in thinking about teaching with video games, have a look at metagaming, playing, competing, spectating, cheating, trading, making, and breaking video games by Stephanie Bullock and Patrick Lemieux. Off Campus History is on all the major podcast apps, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or tell someone you know about the show. Those sorts of things really help out. Also, I post some images related to each episode's topic on Facebook and Instagram, so if you want to see some cool historical pictures or paintings or that sort of thing, feel free to follow the show there. If you're a fellow historian who'd like to be on the podcast, shoot me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com as I'm looking to line up future guests, and I'd love to hear comments from other listeners as well. Artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia, and the music was made by Nella Ruiz. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more Off Campus History. Mm